it is good to see you guys as always. Um, it's always it's such a joy, such a privilege to be able to come together as as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, a lot of places in the world can't do that without severe persecution, and that's something we really take for granted. But I'm just so thankful that we can come together um, and proudly, loudly proclaim uh, the name, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what a, what a blessing. Um, we are uh, going to be in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, uh, for one more time. Um, so if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, we'll start in verse 1. Um, and if you would stand with us um, as we read God's word together. This is what it says, Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Thus says the word of the Lord, you guys can be seated. This morning we are officially uh, finishing our series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, but before we get into and talk about the tenth and the last commandment, let's, let's remember where we're at in the story of Israel and what's happening here. Uh, so we read in Exodus how God miraculously delivers Israel from slavery, how he leads them out of Egypt by his mighty hand. He leads them through the Red Sea and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And the people are now preparing themselves and getting ready to enter into the land that God has promised them with Yahweh God as their king, as their their leader, their God. And God is making a covenant with this people. And so the question then is this, what does it look like or what should it look like to live as God's covenant people 
in the land that he's bringing us into. And so to help with that, God gives his people the law. He gives them the commandments. And the first purpose of the law is to show the people how they are to live and how they are to be different from the nations surrounding them that they'll encounter. That's what it means to be set apart, to be holy. It means to be, it means to be different, to live differently than those around you. Now, you might be thinking, well, you know, this guy sitting next to me, he's, he's pretty different. Um, does, is that what it means to be holy? Well, here's, here's the thing we can't miss, that to be holy means to be different and live differently, yes. But God is the one who sets the standard for what this different life should look like. And so there's plenty of people out there who are living very differently compared to the world. But holiness, being set apart, means living differently than the world according to the standards of God and for the glory of God. And so the law was given to show Israel that they were to be different, to look different, to live different than the peoples surrounding them. If you are, if you are a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, then your life, my life, should look radically different different than the people around us that don't know the Lord. And one of the problems in the church today is people who who claim Jesus as Lord but then live just like everybody else around them. If you are one of God's people, then we're called to be set apart, to be holy. To live differently. But there's, a, there's another major purpose of the law. And that is to reveal to us our sinful nature. And to show us our inability to keep the law. So the first thing that you should notice about the law is your inability to keep it. Have any of you picked up on that? Right? So if I'm unable to keep the law... If I'm unable to obey the law that God has set, that God has given, then there's only two options. The first is to suffer the righteous and just judgment of God. And the second option is I need someone to save me. I need someone to intervene, to intercede on my behalf. So the law helps reveal to us our need our, our absolute desperate need for a Savior. So God gives his people the law, and he gives them these Ten Commandments. And he ends the Ten Commandments with, with a command, you shall not covet. And so the questions that we want to answer this morning are, what does it even mean to covet, right? We, we, know, what, we know what murder is, we know what adultery is, we know what... We know what stealing and lying is, you know, coveting, that's not really a word that we use necessarily a lot. So what, is, what does it even mean to covet? And, and secondly, why is it harmful? Why does God tell us that we shouldn't do it? And then thirdly, why does God end the law? Why does God end the Ten Commandments specifically with this command not to covet? Is there a reason for that? Is there a purpose in that? And then lastly... What does the command not to covet mean for me 
as a new covenant believer today. That's important. We want to look at that. So the Hebrew word uh, for covet means to desire earnestly, to long after, or to set one's desire on. That's what it means to covet. But, but coveting or covetousness, it's a lot more than just admiring something that belongs to your neighbor, right? So, so I can, you know, I can go out in the parking lot and, you know, see your new car and I can admire it and say, hey, that's, that's really nice. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure that's a nice car to have and, and a nice car to drive. And, and I can, I can admire the career you have. I can admire your home or your family. And, and that's not what we're talking about. But to covet is for me to, to look at something and to say, I cannot be happy or fulfilled until I have that or that, whatever it is. That's what it means to covet. So God is saying you shall not set your desire on, you shall not long for, you shall not yearn for anything outside of what I have given you to enjoy. There are a lot of examples of of covetousness in Scripture. There's a lot of stories we could talk about. Probably probably one of the, the very most well-known is the story of David and Bathsheba uh, in 2 Samuel 11, right? And, and anytime, anytime we talk about David and Bathsheba, you know, we, 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 when we preach about it, when we talk about it in church, we mention, oh yeah, you know, David committed the sin of, a, of adultery, obviously, and he committed the sin of murder, and then there was the, the lying and the deception, and on and on and on. But first and foremost, it's a story about coveting, right? David desired something that wasn't his, that God hadn't given to him. And that unchecked desire resulted in numerous other sins committed. But I I think an even better example of covetousness we, we read about, we find at the very beginning of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 2 and three, the story of Adam and Eve. And let me just read this, um, this passage out of Genesis 2 for you. This is verse 15 and 17, uh, verses 15 through 17. And it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God puts Adam and Eve in the garden to to be his stewards, to steward his reign on earth. He gives them authority over all of the creation. And he gives them everything to enjoy. Except for one thing. One thing, he says. He says, you can enjoy everything. This is all given for you except this one thing. God gives them everything and withholds just one thing. And he withholds it for their good. But you see, Adam and Eve, they weren't content with what God had given them. They desired the one thing that God had withheld from them. They coveted that which God had not given them to enjoy. Right? And we know how the story goes from there. Disobedience, rebellion, deception, fall, curse, 
They're sent away from the garden out of God's presence. God says, if you're going to be my covenant people, then you will not covet, you will not desire anything that is your neighbor's that I haven't given to you. You won't covet his wife. You won't covet his property. You won't covet anything that's his. Now, it would have been extremely common practice um, in the cultures of, of that time, the cultures around Israel, for the strong to prey on the weak. So if you see something and you want it and you have the power to take it, then you take it, right? But God makes it clear that his people will be different. His people aren't going to be like the people around them, and his people will be satisfied and content with what he has given and what he has provided for them. You see, a heart that covets demonstrates a lack of trust in God. When we covet, when we desire something that isn't ours, that God hasn't given to us, we're essentially saying, God, I don't believe that what you have provided for me is enough. I don't believe that what you've given me is enough. We're essentially saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust your plan. I don't trust your intentions for me. Have you ever told God that? Anyone? I'm pretty sure I have. God, you're, you're not enough. You haven't, you haven't given me what I need. You haven't provided for me what I need. Adam and Eve, they had everything. Everything. They lived in the very presence of God, but they didn't trust that what God had provided for them was enough. And they wanted more. And they wanted what wasn't theirs. So, covetousness demonstrates... A lack of trust in God and what he's given us. But it also demonstrates a lack of satisfaction in God himself. Right? When we covet, we're not only showing that what God has provided for us is not enough, but we're essentially saying that God himself is not enough for us. So to covet then means that we seek fulfillment and satisfaction in anything outside of the person of God. God is not enough to satisfy us. And so we seek to be filled and satisfied by other things. For Adam and Eve, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For King David, it was, it was a woman that he wasn't married to, that wasn't his wife. For the Pharisees in Jesus' time, it, it was the praise and adulation of men. And for us today, all kinds of things, right? There's all kinds of things we try to stuff our lives with to make us feel happier and more fulfilled and more satisfied. And when we seek anything besides Jesus to fill us up, to satisfy us, that's called idolatry. And so Paul writes in Ephesians, Ephesians 5 verse 5, Paul writes, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, 
has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. The parentheses are not, are not mine. I didn't put those there. Those are, those are in the original text. And then he writes again in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Uh, when I was going into eighth grade, um, I met this beautiful 13-year-old girl who I'm now married to. Um, happily married to for a long time now, and uh, I don't I don't know if it was love at first sight, but it was something pretty close to that. And uh, we started dating our freshman year of high school, and I mean I was in love with this girl, and I I realized you know I was I was really young, um, but but I I'd, I'd found the best there was, um, and uh, and and I love this girl. And by the time I kid you not, by the time I was a sophomore in high school, I knew absolutely um, I want to marry this girl, and um, and I want to spend the rest of my life with her. And I had no doubt about that. And um, that became really kind of the the focus of my life and of my heart's desire. Um, and she was incredible. She still is. And uh, the problem was is that I started to fall more in love with her than with Jesus. Um, and it got to the point where, where my heart really treasured her above Christ. And so she did the very wise and correct thing to do, and she dumped me. And, uh, and I just want to say publicly, that was, the, that was a good call. <clears throat> um, because I was in such an unhealthy place. And, and when that happened, look, I realized I was a 16-year-old, but I was, devast- I was absolutely devastated. I felt like um, there was no reason to live anymore. I mean, my life had lost all of its joy, all of its purpose, and I was, I was deeply depressed for months on end. And I was angry at God, and I questioned God. And I was, I was frustrated, and I didn't trust God. I didn't trust that what he had for me was good, right? That you've, you've taken away the thing that brings me the most joy. And so I was angry. I was depressed. But I remember, I remember this was months later. I remember one night, it was at a, it was at a worship service, and... Uh, God, as he, as, he, as he does, was faithful to me. He didn't give up on me. And he kept pursuing me. And he kept lavishing me with his grace and his mercy and his steadfast love. And we were at this worship service one night. And we were singing. And, and I was praying. And I, I, I'll never forget this night. But I finally came to the place as a 16-year-old boy where I was able to, to pray and tell the Lord, you know what, this, this might never happen. And at that point, it didn't look like it would. So obviously, the story turned out great, right? I didn't know that at the time. Um, I said, Lord, this, this may never happen. This may not work out the way that I want it to. Um, and that's okay, because you are, you are what I need. You're everything that I need. 
Um, and uh, I'm, I'm your guy no matter what. I'm going to follow after you regardless, no matter what happens. And that was the hardest thing I think that I've ever prayed. Um, but it, it set me free. And, and that, that night was one of the most spiritual, impactful moments of my entire life. And it's affected my life from then on out. And, uh, man, I'm thankful to say that in the end, I still got the girl. Um, God was so gracious to me, and he's given me so many things I don't deserve. Um, but what an important moment in my life to realize, Jesus, you're everything. You're everything that I need. And if I have you, I have everything. You shall not covet the last commandment of the ten that God gives to his people. So why do you think, why do you think that God gives this commandment last? Why make this the grand finale of the ten commandments, right? So he starts out with a bang, you shall have no other gods before me, right? That's a, that's a good starting point. And then you think, man, he's, he's going to want to finish it out with something really good um, to kind of bring this whole thing together. And he, he finishes by commanding us, that we should not covet. Why is that? Now, I believe, I'm absolutely convinced that, that um, putting this commandment last was not just random coincidence. It wasn't just random order. That, but that God had specific purpose and meaning in ending the commandments with this command not to covet. Now, first, um, I would point out that the command not to covet is a reiteration of the first two commandments. So the first two commandments say, You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make an idol, and you shall not bow down to it. And to the Israelites in that day, that would have meant, don't worship the gods in the nations around you, and don't participate in their rituals, and don't pray to their idols, to the Baals and the Asherahs, and so on and so forth. But the command not to covet takes this even a step further, and it, it both reiterates but also expands on what the first two commandments mean. See, worshiping an idol, it doesn't just include making a, a little wood or gold or bronze statue and bowing down to it. It doesn't just mean praying to the God of a neighboring nation, but worshiping an idol means looking to anything other than God himself. For our fulfillment and our joy and our satisfaction. And so, all of a sudden, these commandments have gotten a lot harder to keep, right? I mean, how many of you have a little wooden statue in your garage that you pray to at night? Anyone? If you do, come talk to me at the end and we'll help sort you out. Um, but probably no one, right? Um, how many of you have ever treasured something in your hearts more than God? Yeah. I'd have to put my hand up too. So the command not to covet begins to redefine even what it means to obey and keep the law. See, keeping the law, and this is so important that we get this, keeping the law is not just about avoiding certain behaviors. Keeping the law is a heart issue, 
right? Jesus makes this so clear, Matthew 19, the story of the rich young ruler, um, where this, this young guy comes to Jesus. He's got all the wealth in the world. And he says, you know, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And, and Jesus tells him, well, you know, you've, you've got to obey the commandments. And, and the guy says, well, which one's Jesus? And so Jesus rattles off a few, you know, don't, don't murder and don't commit adultery and don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And the guy says, well, that's good because all of these I have kept since I was young. And Jesus says, well, there's still one thing that you lack. If you want to be perfect, if you really want to follow me, then sell everything you have and give it away to the poor and come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. What was he saying? Jesus was saying, look, bud, I know that you've, I know that you've followed the rules and I know that you have avoided certain behaviors, but it's about your heart. What is your heart treasure? What is your heart desire? And it says that the young man went away sad because he had great wealth. Because he treasured something more than Jesus. Keeping the law isn't just about avoiding certain behaviors. But keeping the law is a heart issue because because coveting is a heart issue. Coveting is not just when we take something that, that isn't ours, but it's when we desire anything above Jesus. Coveting is when our hearts desire anything above Jesus Christ. Think about this. You know, so I, I'm looking through the law here, and, and I, can, I can say, well, I've never murdered anyone. Okay, check. Um, I haven't cheated on my wife ever. Check. I've never stolen anything, you know, maybe like a candy bar when I was a kid. I don't know. That doesn't really count anyway. But, um, but, uh, but you know, I don't. I, I pay my taxes. I don't. I don't steal. I don't take what's mine. So I, I'll check that one off. And um, yeah, I've never borne false witness against my neighbor. Um, have I told a white lie or two? Yeah, sure. You know, who hasn't? But you know, I've never intentionally given false witness in order to harm my neighbor. So let's check check that one off the list too and 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 then i start to think well i'm doing pretty good here right and then we get to the end don't covet don't let your heart desire anything more than jesus well now i'm in trouble right and and now the entire law starts to take on a much fuller meaning this is what jesus is getting at in the sermon on the mount in, uh, in Matthew 5 through 7. So, so don't murder all of a sudden becomes don't be angry at your brother. Don't harbor resentment. Don't commit adultery all of a sudden becomes don't lust in your heart. Don't steal becomes don't rob God of his glory. Don't have any other gods before me becomes don't delight in anything above me. And oh man. If I look at it like that, then I've broken all of them a lot of times, and so have you, right? So if living a life that is pleasing to God is not just about avoiding certain behaviors, but, but is about having a pure and a righteous heart, then what hope do we possibly have? If living a life that's pleasing to the Lord requires a pure and righteous heart, then I need a new heart, right? 
And that's one of God's purposes in giving us the law is to show us our need for a new heart. Imagine a patient who's um, who's going through heart failure and who desperately needs a transplant. And, and imagine the doctor coming to him and said and saying, well, you just got to work harder. Just get your heart to do better. Right. Well, no. This person doesn't need to work harder or make their heart work better. This person needs a new heart, right? That's their only hope. And this is the human condition that we need a new heart. And we need a Savior to give us a new heart. That's exactly what Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel were prophesying. Let me read you a couple of these scriptures. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, For this is the covenant... That I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And Ezekiel 36 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. So the command not to covet. Not to desire anything above the Lord. Was given to foreshadow our need for a new and better covenant. But not just that. Our need for a new heart. And guess what? Christian. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That means you've been given a new heart. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Christ, you and I have been made new. God has given us a new heart. And through his power, through his spirit, we are enabled, empowered to live a life that's pleasing and glorifying to him. So, do not covet. What does that mean for us today as New Covenant believers? We're not part of the Old Covenant. We're not under the law. We're under the New Covenant. You shall not covet. What does that mean for you and I today? So, I mean, I've, I've never coveted my neighbor's donkey, so... I guess I'm doing pretty good. Um, if you have a neighbor that has a donkey, then then pro- I hope I hope you haven't coveted that donkey. Um, but for the rest of us that don't have donkeys or livestock as neighbors, um, what what does the command mean for us today? And and this is something um, that's really crucial to understand about about the law, um, and and that is that the law doesn't just tell us what we shouldn't be doing. But the law always implies what we should be doing. Say that one more time. The law does not just exist to tell us what we shouldn't do or shouldn't be doing, but the law always implies what we should be doing and how we should be living. So the command not to murder is also a command to love our neighbors, no matter what they look like. No matter what their political ideologies, right? 
love your neighbor. The command not to steal is a command to be generous and to live generously, right? And the command not to covet is a command to be content. You shall be content. So let me ask you, how content are you? How content am I? Christians should, hands down, be the most content people in the world. But we live in a culture today, especially here in the U.S., that spends billions of dollars a year to make you discontent. You've probably picked up on that. You turn on the TV, get on social media for just a minute or two, and you will be bombarded with advertisements whose sole purpose is to make you discontent with what you have. Right? And we eat that stuff up. So, well, you know, you know, the car I bought a few years ago, man, it was awesome back then and it had all these cool things. But, you know, well, now they have, now they have newer models and, you know, man, now, you know, now the... They have cars that'll, you know, make you coffee or fix your breakfast or, you know, you know, park themselves or whatever. And my car doesn't do that. And I'm convinced, man, if I had this newer one, then I'd be happy and I'd be satisfied and my life would be better off because of it. Or, you know, I've. I have the iPhone 24 model, but, you know, now they just came out with the 25. And, you know, that one does some things that, that this one doesn't do. And, and I, sh- I sure would have a better life, or I'd just feel better if I had the newer one. It'd just make life better. I'd be more satisfied. I'd be more fulfilled. And, uh, and on and on and on and on it goes, right? Um, but here's, here's the thing. Discontentment, a discontented heart, is a disease. It's a disease. It may start out seemingly innocent. Right? What's, wrong, what's wrong with wanting a new phone? Or what's, what's wrong with wanting a newer car? Um, it, it may start out innocent, but it always grows. And it always spreads. And a heart that's discontent will start to seep into other areas of your life. I promise. And so all of a sudden... That discontentment starts to seep into your marriage. Well, gosh, I've you know I've been married to this person for a lot of years now, and you know they don't they don't look quite as good as they used to. You know they've they've put on a few pounds, and you know their their teeth have changed a few shades of color, or you know whatever it might be. You know they don't they don't really treat me like they used to when when we were dating and. Um, you know, they're just not, they're just not quite as thoughtful anymore, quite as loving. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's time for a newer model and maybe it's, maybe it's time for an upgrade. Um, discontentment. And we, you know, we chuckle about that, but, um, um, but, but look at, look at marriages falling apart all around us. Discontentment. Discontentment will work its way into our churches. Right. Well, you know, the worship team, you know, they're good, but, you know, they're they're not they're not quite what they used to be. And, you know, we used to have that that one guy and, you know, he was so good on whatever instrument and, you know, he's not here. It's just I don't know. I just don't you know, I don't like it quite as much. Or, you know, our, our pastor, our preacher, he's you know, he's good. But, man, I heard this guy down the street the other day and 
And that guy told a, a lot more jokes, and you know, he, was, he was funnier, and you know, he was a little more entertaining, and man, I really like that. Or, or you know, this, this church down the street, they, man, they just put a Starbucks into their church. And man, if, if we had that, church would, church would be better, you know? And, and or, you know, this, this one church, man, they have this massive play, indoor playground for the kids. And man, should I really have my kids at a church without a big indoor playground. I mean, that's just poor parenting, you know. If I were at a church like that, it would it would be better and our family would be better and you know, on and on and on. Discontentment will spread into every area of your life. Every area. But this is what God's word says, 1 Timothy 6 verse 6. Be a good one to memorize and it's nice and short. But godliness with contentment is great gain. I love the irony of that statement. Do you want great gain? Then be content. Right? It doesn't really make sense on a superficial level, but as always, God's kingdom doesn't operate the way the kingdom of the world does. Godliness with contentment is great gain. See, Contentment is so much more than just having a good attitude about life. True contentment is the result of being satisfied in Christ. Right? We, we sang it earlier. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. True contentment is only the result of being satisfied in Christ. Because if we have Christ, then what else do we need? What else do we need? The greatest treasure of all has, has been given to me and given to you, and it, it can never be taken from me. So what could I possibly be lacking? The cure for discontentment is not getting more stuff. It's not working harder on your attitude. It's not filling your life with more religious activities. But the cure for discontentment is seeing and savoring the beauty of Jesus Christ, your Savior. That's how how contentment grows. By seeing the glory and beauty of Christ. And recognizing and affirming with each other as the body that Christ is all that I need. He's all that I need. You shall not covet means that God's people will be satisfied in Him. Be satisfied in Him. When life is good and it's easy and things are happy, we're satisfied in Him. When life is wearisome and exhausting, and it is and it will be, we are satisfied in him and when life is heartbreaking and i know some of your stories and i know what some of you have been through and are walking through when life is heartbreaking we are satisfied in him hallelujah all i have is christ there's a man that lived in the 1800s named horatio spafford I've told this story, I think, a few years ago. Um, But he wrote a very familiar song that we sing here often called It Is Well. Right? The old hymn, It Is is Well 
with my soul. And uh, Horatio Spafford was a, was a very successful businessman. Um, he had a wife and five kids. Um, seemingly a really good life. And then all of a sudden, bad things started to happen. It started with him losing his two-year-old son. Um, and then soon after that, there was the great Chicago fire of 18-something, I don't remember. Um, and it, it ruined him financially. Uh, and, so, um, and so he was looking into doing some business in Europe and was, was planning on traveling to Europe with his family. Um, but because of the fire and, and some other things... Um, it changed his plans, and so he sent his family ahead of him to sail across the Atlantic, and then he would go and, and meet up with them later. And as his, as his wife and four daughters sailed across the Atlantic, their ship was struck by another ship, and the ship sunk, and all four of his daughters were drowned. And he got a telegram from his wife saying, I'm, I'm the only survivor. And so, as he was sailing himself across the Atlantic to reunite with his wife, um, at one point he sailed very close to the spot where his family ship had gone down, where his daughters had lost their lives. And as he was sailing past that place, he, he penned these words that we've sung many times. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Listen, guys. That kind of faith, that kind of trust in Jesus in the midst of the absolute worst circumstances you could imagine can only come from a heart that recognizes if I have Christ, I have everything. I have everything I need. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. My prayer is that our hearts cry for me, for you, for Northridge life. Our hearts cry would be the same as the psalmist, Psalm 73. Who says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray together. Father, I, I thank you for sending Jesus who gave up so much to come live a life here on earth to rescue sinners like me, like all of us, and suffered things we could never imagine so that we could be with you. And God forgive us, have mercy when we seek other things besides you to make us happy, to fill us, to satisfy us. And we want to 
we want to declare this morning, and we need your help. But we want to declare this morning that you, Christ Jesus, are are all in all, and you are everything that we need. And even those of us who have walked and are walking through the darkest of circumstances, may we all be able to say together, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Jesus is my treasure. Make that a reality in our hearts today, Lord. And help us as the body of Christ to remind ourselves of that and to encourage each other in that and to build each other up in that. Lord, as we, as we suffer, how to help, us to, help us to surround each other and, uh, and just speak the gospel to each other, that if we have Christ, we have everything. Um, thank you for thank you for the table that we get to come come to now and, and celebrate all that you've done and all that you've accomplished for us. And so God, we give you all glory, all honor, all praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.